Welcome to the Life Together podcast. Life Together is a Wednesday gathering for worship, Bible study, and community at Discover Church in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. We hope that this week's message will encourage you and challenge you. Our mission here at Discover Church is to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. In John chapter 18, Jesus is called to be tried by the ruling governor of Judea. So he's already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's already been tried by the religious leaders and the high priest of Jerusalem. But there's a problem because the high priest of Jerusalem, he wants to see Jesus executed for heresy, but he doesn't have the power to do that. The high priest had a lot of power, but they couldn't authorize an execution, and they had to get someone else to sign off on this. And so they took Jesus to the ruling governor of Judea, and his name was Pilate. So when they show up at Pilate's place, the first thing Pilate does is he interviews the religious leaders and asks the questions, who is this man? What is he doing? And he's not satisfied with their answer. And so Pilate then goes and says, I'm done talking with you. I want to go talk to that man, Jesus. And when he gets into this conversation with Christ, Jesus gives him some surprisingly honest and straightforward answers. Now you would say, it's Jesus. Of course he's honest and straightforward. But that's not always true. Because many times in Jesus' ministry, he'll speak in parables or he might not answer their questions directly. And in this conversation, he's very Direct. Even there's times where Jesus will speak about himself in third person, and he'll say, the Son of Man will give eternal life, rather than saying, I will give you eternal life. And when Pilate asks these questions to Jesus, Jesus gives him one of the most powerful, on-the-nose, straightforward answers to who he is and what he came here to do. Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus says, yes, but... Let me explain. He says, Ike was born into this world to testify to the truth, and everyone who loves truth knows that what I say is true. That's a powerful answer. He says, I was born into this world to testify to the truth, and anyone who loves truth knows that what I say is true. Now, Pilate has a problem with this answer because there are words that Jesus is using that Pilate doesn't understand. If you think about every definition, this is kind of how this works, that I define something that you don't know by describing something that you do know to help you understand. So if there's a species of fish that I've never seen before and you tell me that it's blue, that's helpful to me because I know what blue is. But if I didn't know what blue was, then your definition is not helpful to me. And there's a word that Jesus is using that Pilate doesn't understand. And so his follow-up question is this. He says, what is truth? You just told me that you were born into this world to testify to the truth, and everyone who loves truth knows that what you say is true. But what is truth? There was an article in The New Yorker a couple months ago. There was a comedian who released a big special on Netflix, and they were interviewing him about his Netflix special. And in his uh, comedy spiel, he's telling lots of stories. A lot of them are fun and goofy stories. But also in his special, he includes several stories that were very dark stories, very hurtful 
personal stories, stories about abuse, stories about being treated poorly as an immigrant. And he had these really dark stories, and this interviewer had done their homework, and the stories mentioned certain names and people and places, and so they had done their research, and they were pretty sure that none of these stories were actually true. So they called this comedian on it, and he said, yes, yes, none of those stories are true, but he said they are emotionally true. He said, because they feel as if they should be true. And if it feels true, then can't it actually be true? I think our culture really struggles with truth. I think we have a really hard time understanding this. And I think we and the people around us and our friends and our families could often find ourselves asking the same question that Pilate asked, what is truth? Tonight is week six in our six-week walk through the book of Judges. I want to go back to the very first verse we read in the entire six-week series, which happens to be the very last verse in the book of Judges, and we're going to start there tonight. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says this. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Can we pray as we walk into God's word tonight? Father, we thank you that you're here in this room. We have felt your spirit in our worship time. We have felt your spirit in our prayer time. And it is a joy to have a creator who doesn't stand far away, but who moves in close, who knows every hair on our head, who knows every name in this room and every story. We pray, Lord, that as we spend time in your word, your Holy Spirit would speak to us, allow us to be sensitive to your voice, allow us to be moved and shaped by you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In Judges chapter 13, there is an angel who appears to a woman who is having trouble having children. She had been barren for many years, and this angel has really good news. And the angel says, you are going to have a child. This is great news. Did you know that the mothers of Israel, the, the four matriarchs of Israel, three of them were barren at some point? So Sarah was not able to have children for a long time. Rebecca was not able to have children at some point. And then Jacob's second wife, Leah, was also not able to have children. God uses children as good news all throughout Scripture. Think about the angel who delivered the good news to Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a virgin, and so it was, it was impossible for her to have children, and yet God made the impossible possible as he came to bring this good news. The story of Samson, the birth of Samson, is a reflection of that story. It's a reflection of that promise that God told Eve, you're not going to win the battle, but one of your kids is. I think every mom in the room would be very happy to have that promise, that you may not win the battle, but one of your kids is going to. That's hope. Samson is that seed of redemption. In this series, we've looked at six different judges, and each week, the people of Israel have faced six different oppressors, different communities that lived all around Israel that would then move in and take control and oppress the Israelite people. Well, this week, we're moving into a new group of people, and these people are called the Philistines. And the Philistines have a unique approach to the way that they oppress the Israelites. It's not the same as the others. They are not trying to subjugate them beneath them. They force Israel to blend in with them. 
they marry them. They take some of their religious beliefs and they share some of their own. This isn't like Egypt where you'd have all of the masters living over here and all of the slaves living over here. Their goal wasn't to subjugate them. Their goal was to assimilate them and to blend in. If you think of the Philistines and you only think of warriors on a hillside with swords and spears, you're not really seeing the Philistines yet. The Philistines had a very developed and progressive culture. They had art and music and theater and beautiful architecture and a beautiful building. So don't think of a warfare in a valley. Think of the city of Milwaukee. And the goal was not to destroy the Israelites. The goal was to assimilate them. By the time that Samson shows up, you might have had trouble figuring out who in town was a Philistine and who in town was an Israelite, who in town followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who in town followed the false gods of Dagon and the false gods of the Philistines. I want to tell you, I really hope that your family and friends and your co-workers don't have a hard time figuring out that you're a Christian. We want to be a people who it's easy to figure that out. Uh, author Michael Wilcox says it this way. He says, there is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. In their society, the Philistines had taken over. They had wiped away the Israelites' worship, the Israelites' gods, and it had all blended into one new thing that was so very displeasing to God. The Israelites had all but disappeared, and then here comes Samson. So Samson, as a baby, is born, and through the message to his parents, Samson is set apart. Samson lives by the Nazarite vow, which means he can never cut his hair, he can never drink wine, and never touch dead things. Samson is this seed of redemption. His father knows this, his mother knows this, and then Samson grows up. Let's read the opening of Judges chapter 14 and see what happens when this promised redeemer grows up. Judges 14, verse 1 through 3 says this. One day, when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked. Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. I want to talk for a bit tonight about Samson's eyes. So verse 2, Samson says, that woman caught my eye. In verse 4, Samson says, she looks good to me. Samson is a young man who is driven by his eyes. Have you ever been to one of those old diners with like the slowly rotating dessert case? I don't know why it works, but it just works. Because if that piece of pie was sitting still, I'd be like, that's a 10-day-old piece of pie. But when it's moving, I'm like, I hate carrots, but I need that carrot cake right now. Dancing, swiveling carrot cake. Samson is driven by his eyes, and he's using his eyes to determine his decisions. Samson makes some unusual decisions, but he does not make them in an unusual way. Most of us make decisions with our eyes. 
It is what we see that we follow. That car looks nicer than mine, I'm going to buy it. Those clothes look newer than mine, I'm going to buy them. That food looks delicious, I'm going to eat it. That show looks funny, I'm going to watch it. That man looks handsome, I'm going to buy the deodorant that he's wearing in that commercial. That woman looks beautiful, I'm going to ask her on a date after I find a babysitter for our four children. God made your eyes, and God made a beautiful creation with beautiful things and beautiful people in it. Finding pleasure in the beauty of creation isn't a sin. It is part of God's design. He wants you to look at Lake Michigan and say, wow, that's beautiful. Husbands, he wants you to look at your wife and say, wow, she's beautiful. God made your eyes, and God made a beautiful world to live in it. What goes wrong is when our eyes start calling all of the shots. Proverbs 17, 24 says, Sensible people keep their eyes glued on wisdom, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. Proverbs 7, 2 says, Obey my commands and live. Guard my instructions as you guard your own eyes. We need to have guarded eyes. Proverbs 16.2 says, People may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. This is an interesting question to ask. When Samson brought home this Philistine woman who worshipped a different God than the God of his house, did Samson know he was doing anything wrong? You know, from everything that we see in Scripture, uh, the answer is no. No, he, he didn't know. Samson thought he was doing what was right. He was doing what was right in his eyes. He was completely convinced that he was making a good decision. Why? Because it looked good. Because she caught his eye because she looked good, and this looked like a great decision to make. I want to hold the fast-forward button down here for a minute and push through some of the major events in Samson's life. In chapter 14, Samson tries to marry this woman, but things go south at the bachelor party. So Samson is tricked into losing a bet and has to come up with 30 fine linen robes. He's so angry about losing the bet that he kills 30 men and takes their clothes off of their dead bodies. In chapter 15, Samson goes back to marry the Philistine woman, but she's now married to someone else. Samson gets so angry that he sets the Philistines' crops on fire. They retaliate by killing the woman. Samson retaliates by killing a thousand men. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of knee-jerk reactions, a lot of anger, a lot of disregard for human life, a lot of unbiblical, ungodly, unlawful actions that Samson is taking on. But here's the question again. Did Samson think that any of his decisions were wrong? Did he think he was doing good, or did he think he was doing evil? Sometimes we look around the world, and it is very easy for us to assume sinister motivations on all of our enemies. They're so wicked. They're so evil. But I want to push your thinking tonight. Have you considered the possibility that they think they are doing good? When an abortion provider helps terminate a pregnancy, do they think they are doing evil or doing good? When a surgeon helps a teenager retool their body parts to match their preferred gender, do they think they're doing evil or doing good? When a self-righteous Christian cuts others down, demeans their pastor, and publicly defames their church, do they think they're doing good or doing evil? 
There's a 17th century Puritan writer named Thomas Brooks, and he wrote, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. I think Samson thought they were doing good, and I think many people in our world think that they're doing good. It's the poisonous apple in Snow White, right? It may be poison, but it looks good. It looks right. It looks right in my eyes. So if my eyes have one view of what is good and what is evil, and you have a different view of what is good and what is evil, and the city of Milwaukee and your friends and your neighbors and your parents have a different view of what is good and evil, then I want to come all the way back to Pilate's question and ask you, what is truth? Is it all just perspective? Is it all just opinion? The strongest definition that I could find is this. Truth is, in fact, in reality. So I might like to believe that I am as healthy as a 28-year-old, but in fact, I'm 40. I would like to believe that my hair is still black, but in reality, it's not. I would like to believe that I'm 190 pounds of muscle, but in reality, I'm 170 pounds of mostly water and frozen custard. Truth is immovable. Truth is inflexible. Truth is unchanging and inconsiderate to your opinions. Truth does not compromise and truth does not react. Truth is reliable and firm and more predictable than the sun. Truth is everlasting. By the time we get to Judges chapter 16, 20 years have now gone by from that first episode to the next. Samson is older. Samson is a judge over Israel. And there is now a very serious rift between the Philistines and Israelites. They used to be blended together. And then what happened? Samson happened. And when Samson came through there like a storm, there is now a giant rift between the Philistines and the Israelites. Trouble is brewing. And right after Samson brings the very first woman home to his parents, there's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen or, or why is this happening? How is it that God is using such a undisciplined man to bring good things into Israel? Judges 14.4, he said, His father and his mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. Which is just crazy that God used Samson's chaos. There is no possible way that you can explain everything that Samson did as a good decision. He's clearly erratic. He's led by his anger. He's led by lust. He's making terrible decisions, and yet God is using Samson for his glory Samson is a reactive, violent, lust-driven leader, and yet God is still using him to accomplish heavenly objectives. I want to push your thinking here tonight. If you have a manager, a boss, a principal, a pastor, a governor, a president that you recognize as imperfect, I want to remind you that God may still be using them to achieve his perfect will. In Samson's 20 years of leadership, a lot has changed, but what hasn't changed is Samson. He's still the same guy responding in the same way in very similar situations. He meets a new woman. Her name is Delilah, and the woman is new, but the story is old. His eyes betray him. He's tricked. He is stripped of his power. He's captured. He's tortured, and the Philistines gouge out his eyes. 
I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for all of your body to be thrown into hell. From that day forward, Samson will never see again another beautiful woman. He will never see a beautiful sunrise. He'll never see a beautiful meal. He'll never see the smile on the face of someone that he loves. And Samson loses his eyesight. And then Samson, in prison, does something that he had never done before. And Samson starts to see truth. There is a humility that comes on him at this point. Once his physical eyesight has been stolen away from him, that his spiritual eyesight begins to see. You know, God said, don't get married to someone who worships another God. That is truth. It is God's truth, and you can kind of try and work around it, but it won't work for you. You can run up against that wall a thousand times, and the wall's not going to move. That is a truth that you can't negotiate with. God says being quick-tempered will lead you to destruction. This happened to Samson over and over again. It kept ruining his life and the lives of the people around him. It is an immovable truth. It doesn't change. It is God's word, and it's true. God says don't covet, don't lust after your neighbor's stuff, over your neighbor's wife. Feeding these desires will destroy your future. That is not God's advice. It is God's truth, and it doesn't move. And if you can sit here in the room and think, I'm going to be the one person who's going to pull it off. That's not going to stop me. I can change that. I would challenge your arrogance tonight to look at the pattern of Scripture and look at the pattern of the people's lives around you and see that God's truth is unchanging. It doesn't move. And the thing that needs to move isn't his truth. The thing that needs to move is us. And we need to move in humility towards his Words. Samson had both of his eyes torn out of his face before he started to see. Author Timothy Keller describes the story of Samson like this. The story of Samson begins with a strong man who is revealed to be weak, but it ends with a weak man who is stronger than he ever was before. I want to read to you Samson's final prayer from Judges chapter 16. So he's in prison. His hair has now grown back out. He's brought out into a giant arena as part of a worship festival to the Philistine gods. He asked one of the servants to tie his hands to two pillars supporting the center roof. Verse 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hand on the two center pillars that held up the temple, pushing against them with both hands. He prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. And so he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire life. I want you to do a little exercise with me. And if you'll, if you'll, you'll go with me here, let's go ahead and all close our eyes. So we're going to close our eyes here for a second. And go ahead and just take a breath and breathe in and let your body relax a little bit. We'll breathe in and we'll breathe out. And I want you to kind of tune in to the things that you can hear. And I want you to imagine the possibility that you could never open your eyes again. And that the last thing that you saw is the last thing you'll ever see. And now you got to find a way home. So we'd have to all... 
We can't use our phones because we can't dial it without looking at the numbers. So we just kind of wait here one by one for someone to get a ride for each one of us to get us to our home tonight. What if God took away your physical sight? And then what if God retuned, enhanced, brightened, clarified your spiritual sight? What if we never saw another thing, and yet what if we saw truth more clearly than we had ever seen it before? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to see? I want you to pray with me. Father, help us to see your truth. Every one of us walks into this conversation with our own culture, our own expectations, our own experiences, our own baggage, and it is so easy for us to walk through life making truth whatever seems right to us, making calls, every call based on our perspective, our history, our decisions. And we can see how time and time again that leads people to a path towards destruction. And we don't want to be making these calls by our sight. We want to be making these calls by your truth. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us right now. I know that every one of us are facing challenges. Every one of us needs wisdom. There are decisions that we're making. There are relationships that we're in. There are are tough things that we are walking through, every one of us in our lives. And it would be so easy for us to make every every decision based on what we see and what seems right to us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, redirect us. Don't let us be the blind leading the blind. Let us be someone who is walking with spiritual eyesight. Give us spiritual 2020 vision to see your truth, to have the humility and the bravery to follow whatever you say, to trust in your word, to know that your word never fails, never changes. It's always reliable. You said that your son is the word. Jesus is the word. He is the word made flesh And I pray that with that word, every one of us would be brave enough and humble enough to guide our lives by it. I pray that tonight would be a night of of humility, a night of reckoning. Help us to see what you want us to see. Forgive us for the moments that we're arrogant, for the moments that we feel unhealthfully convinced that we know every answer. We love you. We need your word. We need your truth to guide us into righteousness, to guide us into goodness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now I want you to open your eyes and look around. Isn't this a beautiful place? If your spouse or your girlfriend's in the room, look at her and just tell her she looks beautiful right now. Aren't you so glad you have your eyesight? Yeah. Okay, I want to I wanna read one more thing to you, and then I want to uh, encourage you as you walk out tonight. So uh, I want to read our, our mission statement for our series one more time before we wrap all this up. Behind every rebellion is the opportunity for reconciliation. Behind every failure is the opportunity for forgiveness. And behind every imperfect hero is a perfect God. I want to encourage you and I want to get a chance before you walk out for me to look at you in the eyes so I can see you. You can see me. Praise God. Some of you need glasses to do it, but that's fine. I can see you, and I want to encourage you tonight that every single person in this room is an imperfect hero. We all messed up. We all fell short. And because of that, you are just as unqualified as I am. And in our unqualifications, God has qualified every single person who calls in the name of Jesus 
and he has a good work for you. By his blood, you are fully qualified to be the redeemer in your story that God wants you to be, for you to be the savior in your story that God wants you to be, and that we can mimic our savior in our everyday lives to be leaders, to be forgivers, to be grace givers, to be kindness and love and patience and goodness to the people that God has called us to, to those he surrounded us to, And I want to remind you, it's just easy to get downcast, right? Life is tough. We've all been through some difficult experiences, and it can be easy to say, I'm imperfect. I probably should sit this one out. Don't sit out. Don't sit out. Rise up, son. Rise up, daughter. God has a calling upon your life, and you are, through his blood, perfectly qualified to do the work that he's called you to. Amen? Amen. We love you. Have a wonderful night. We'll see you back here next week with our missionary guest, and then we'll start something new after that. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we see you in person. Join us Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. or Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. right here at Discover Church. Find us online at discoverchurch.org.